Well, hello again, Wardville Community Church. It's Monday, August 21st, 2023. This is In The Know, episode 78. A handful of announcements for you today. This Wednesday night, August the 23rd, two days from this evening, the Women's Gathering will be taking place at Ronnie Williams' house at 6 p.m. That is 129 Myrtlewood Drive. August the 30th is the Men's Gathering. It's going to be at Evan Stewart's house at 6.30 p.m. 107 Lakeshore Cove in Pineville. September the 3rd, the Visionary Parenting Class begins. That's going to run from 4 to 6 p.m. for eight weeks. Please get your $15 in to Joy to sign up for your book, to pay for your book, so that we can get started with that. September 17th is the baby dedication. We also talked yesterday about an opportunity to serve at the Sinla Pro-Life Banquet. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it's called or not, but if you're interested in being part of that, please get in touch with Erin Gidry, she is trying to marshal 100 volunteers. So this is sort of an all-hands-on-deck situation. All right, let's do some sermon follow-up. The first thing that I shared in today's newsletter are is, the first thing is, made up of two helpful articles. Trying to get my subject-verb agreement going on there. My English teachers from high school would be proud. So two articles that I trust will be very helpful to you as you take stock of your life in light of what we studied yesterday. Both of them are from Desiring God. One is called Almost Saved, Four Reasons to Examine Yourself. And then the other one is an Ask Pastor John. It's called How Does Willful Sinning Threaten My Salvation? And he touches on the verse that we studied yesterday, specifically verse 26, about sinning deliberately or sinning willfully. Let me just say, read through those, listen to those, search the scriptures, and look over your life, contemplate. If, if it's true that, that what we studied yesterday and what we said yesterday, if it's true, it's not a game then it's worth giving some time to introspection on these things. And as you do that, if you have further questions or just feel the need to talk to somebody about this, please reach out. I would love to talk through these issues alongside you. Now, yesterday I also mentioned that we have another Septuagint variant that happened. Um, it, It may be helpful though, to think back and look back at some of the previous discussions that we've had throughout the book of Hebrews on these matters. Um, Our author in Hebrews 10 is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Our English Old Testament, as we've said before, is translated from what you already know is called the Masoretic Text, which is a Hebrew copy of the Old Testament. So, there was a difference between these two manuscripts that produced the difference that we see in our version when we compare the language of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, with Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 36. Now, I'm not completely sure why 
the discrepancy, right, vindicate in the Greek versus judge in the Hebrew got placed within the Greek translation. But as I mentioned yesterday, there's an overlap between these two concepts, and they both prove true. God does judge even his faithful people, and he does vindicate his faithful people in his great mercy and grace. The difference is not quite as stark as it might otherwise seem. Now, I won't offer an argument as to which was the original here, but because it's included in Hebrews, it's clear that the, he- that the Spirit endorses the truthfulness of both and wanted both included in the Bible. Otherwise, there would only be one recorded and they would harmonize perfectly and exactly. So I want to bring forward a quote I shared a couple of weeks ago because I feel like it is of great help to us here thinking about all of this. It's from P.E. Hughes's commentary, and it reads as follows. Well, part of it at least, this is going to be about Jeremiah, so there's that warning, but all of the principles still apply here. The fact that this quotation does not correspond word for word with Jeremiah 31, which was that was what we were studying back when we read this quote, we could just as easily substitute Deuteronomy 32 right there, or even for that matter with the text of his own quotation above in chapter 8, demonstrates once again that the sense of the words is of primary importance, not a slavish obedience to each single word. Indeed, a wooden literalism in effect rules out the legitimacy and even the possibility of a translation and exegesis, and that variations in the quotation of a particular passage do not necessarily suppose variations in loyalty to the original text. Moreover, if, as the church has classically believed, our author is writing under the uh, guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it follows that the Holy Spirit himself is not, so to speak, bound by pedantic notions of verbal punctiliousness but is concerned rather with the understanding and application of the truth of which he is the source. In brief, our author, writing in harmony with the mind of the Spirit, embraces the truth and authenticity of Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant and is silent on emphasizing particular aspects of that prophecy for the benefit of those to whom he is writing without in any way doing violence to the message of Jeremiah. And again, we could just as easily substitute Deuteronomy for Jeremiah there. And so what what we said yesterday, I think is still true. The, The word judge and the word vindicate have a lot of semantic overlap. Like their meaning overlaps a lot because vindication comes through judgment. And vindication means rendering a judgment on behalf of someone. And so given the way that the word, um, like those words work, they both actually do fit. They both actually are true. And, And when I looked this up in the Hebrew text and I looked up that word that's used there, vindicate is within the range of that word. And so, um, using a different Greek word to mean vindicate is not necessarily even untrue to what Deuteronomy is teaching there. So this discrepancy does not mean that the Bible says two different things. Um, I think think it's actually, it's at least 
providing two sides of the same coin. And perhaps, actually, the, the Greek translation is filling out the meaning of the Hebrew translation there. Let's talk for a moment about gracious warnings. I truly believe that passages like Deuteronomy 32, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and others exist for the purpose of stirring up the hearts of genuine believers towards staying in the narrow path, persisting in the arduous, narrow road Christ has called his people to walk. Right? Just like we said, we are prone to wander. Don't we feel it? Right? Lord, we feel it. Prone to wander. And so God has given us graciously in his word, not just commands, not just examples, but warnings. Here's what happens if you don't persist. Here's what happens if you don't persevere. Um, back in Hebrews 3, even, we call these uh, warnings gracious warnings to lead us home. At least I think that was what we said in Hebrews 3. It may have been Hebrews 6. I want these words in Hebrews 10 to have the effect God intends upon his people. Like, I don't want to introduce doubts into your heart. But at the same time, these warnings are real and they should cause us to take stock. They should remind us that we aren't playing games. They ought to renew in us a sense of urgency about our own salvation and that of those around us. And they should ultimately produce within us a holy earnestness to persevere in faith, holding fast the confession of our hope until the very end of our lives. This is one of the ways that God equips us for life and godliness. So examine yourself, test yourself, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and do not let your heart forget or neglect so great a salvation. In Peter's words from 2 Peter 1.10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Yes, what we're after is not this unbelieving fear that somehow Christ will not prove the Savior God says that he is or that somehow our faith, right, when placed in Christ, that it won't quite work the way that God said that it's going to work. Like, I don't want this unbelieving fear to be raised up in your heart, but rather the assurance of trusting him and him alone for full salvation. Like we can have assurance. It, it simply needs to be found in the correct place, namely Jesus, looking to Jesus. Spurgeon said, look not so much to the hand like, by which you're holding on to Christ, but to Christ. Look to Christ. Don't look at yourself so much. Look at Christ. So I pray that the searching, examination, testing, working out of your salvation, the diligent confirmation of your calling and election will result in greater praise and glory to God as well as genuine Christian assurance. Peter also says that the tested genuineness of your faith is more valuable than gold. These warnings serve as signposts for you to ensure your perseverance, to, to stoke you toward perseverance. And they're one way, in other words, in which God preserves his people and through them can produce, does produce assurance. Let's talk quickly about walking the narrow road together. The narrow path is hard. 
Jesus says that. There seem to be dangers on every side. It will feel discouraging, and at times it can feel lonely. But God has given us yet another gift, the church. We do not walk this narrow path together. We trek alongside and with one another toward life. One of the myriad graces that this means is that if we begin to drift toward the ledge, we have surrounding us brothers and sisters who care about us enough to show us our drift and lead us back into the way gently, right? Galatians, restore such a one with gentleness. When and if you ever begin to stray, pray to God that you will have men and women who love you enough to come get you, to rescue you from danger. And if by chance you slip and begin to fall or backslide, may God grant that there would be a chain of people who will catch and anchor you, pulling you back up. And friends, that is what church discipline at its best is or is meant to be. Like, I know church discipline sounds harsh and often comes across that way when we walk it out. But it is loving because at its heart, it is restorative. It calls out sin, yes, but it also extends a hand and seeks to pull that person from a fall away from the living God and onto that wide path of destruction. You're pulling them back. I would argue that the least loving thing is just to watch people fall away without so much as a word, uh, much less an attempt to bring them back. The church is a grace. Now, I said this to Kevin yesterday after we finished up our wonderful and deeply encouraging time together at his house. Um, This was part of our church. So yesterday, in our meeting together and then in our just fellowship in the afternoon, It was part of our church walking with each other toward heaven. And I truly believe that. I pray that you see what a grace the body is. Thank God for it. And then simply entrench yourself in it. It is one of his greatest graces to his people as they walk the narrow path. The last thing that I want to do is I've challenged our people uh, to, to memorize these questions and answers of the New City Catechism. So each week now, before I sign off, I'm going to read the, the question and answer. So this week's catechism question and answer, number one, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer to that is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God, and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So have a great week. I love you people.